June 15, 1497. Pope Alexander frantically searched the apartments of the Vatican for his son, Duke Juan. The previous night, Juan and his brother, Cardinal Cesare, had dined with their mother. Cesare returned to the Vatican. Juan never did. At first, many believed Juan was just avoiding the walk of shame. After all, the known Lothario had told Cesare that he wished to seek further pleasure before calling it a night. But as the hours passed, Alexander knew something was wrong. When fishermen dredged a body out of the Tiber River, his fears were confirmed. It was Juan. He had been stabbed repeatedly in the legs, body, and head. At first, many believed the Pope's son had been a victim of robbery. However, when a full purse was discovered on him, it became clear to all that Juan was murdered. The list of suspects was long. Since becoming Pope five years earlier, Alexander and his sons had gone to great lengths to enrich themselves. In the process, they had accumulated enemies not just in Rome, but throughout the Italian peninsula. The question was, which of Alexander's many enemies was bold enough to kill the Pope's son? Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In this season of Dictators, we're exploring the tyrannical and corrupt reigns of the Renaissance popes, including Alexander VI, Julius II, and Leo X. Last week, we chronicled the long, tumultuous rise of Rodrigo Borgia. After navigating the seedy world of Vatican politics for three decades, Borgia finally became Pope Alexander VI. This week, we'll dive into Alexander's chaotic 11-year pontificate. We'll explore how he accumulated a multitude of enemies at home and abroad, and how he indulged his son's ambitions in a bloody attempt to expand the Borgia dynasty beyond the Vatican walls. Coming up, we return to the Papal States. In August 1492, 61-year-old Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia was elected to the highest office in the Catholic Church, the papacy. Taking the name Alexander VI, the new pope not only became the senior-most authority in Christendom, but also the sovereign leader of the Papal States. Traditionally, the transition between popes was a time of anarchy in Rome. Rival families, namely the Orsini and Colonna, took to the streets to settle scores and raid wealthy palaces. The summer of 1492 was no different. According to historian G.J. Meyer, roughly 200 murders took place that summer. Unlike his predecessors, the new pope decided it was time to truly take control of Rome and crack down on the chaos. He ordered armed guards to comb the streets of Rome and track down the troublemakers. Meyer notes that two especially infamous killers were publicly hanged and their property raised. Those convicted of lesser offenses were locked away in the Castel Sant'Angelo, Rome's imposing fortress. Alexander's efforts were remarkably effective, and within a few short months, Rome was a more peaceful city than at perhaps any time in its history. 
Next, Alexander turned his attention to the judicial system within the Papal States. He appointed qualified judges, not just friends or family, and demanded that they be compensated fairly to avoid bribery. The peace seemed to extend beyond the walls of Rome. In fact, one contemporary historian, Francesco Guicciardini, wrote that in the early 1490s, quote, the greatest peace and tranquility reigned everywhere. Italy never having enjoyed such prosperity or known so favorable a situation. To many, it appeared that Pope Alexander was going to restore honor and dignity to Rome and the church. How naive they all were. Just because the new pope aimed to root out corruption didn't mean he was above handing out favors to his kin. He was, after all, a Renaissance pope. As such, Alexander quickly began making moves that benefited his not-so-secret family. Alexander knew that if the Borgia dynasty was going to survive, he needed to marry off his children to powerful families. So in February 1493, Alexander arranged for his 12-year-old daughter, Lucrezia, to be married to 27-year-old Giovanni Sforza. Since the Sforzas ruled over Milan, the marriage shored up power in the north. And, in a way, it was a show of gratitude, since Giovanni was also the brother of Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, the man who helped engineer Alexander's papal victory. Unfortunately, this put Alexander in the crosshairs of the aging King Ferrante of Naples. At the time, Naples and Milan were at odds, mostly due to the fact that Milan and France were allies. Thus, the marriage to a Sforza could tip the balance of power against Ferrante, who feared France would try to reconquer Naples. Luckily, Alexander's old friends in Spain, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, proposed a double solution. First, they suggested that the prepubescent Joffre Borgia marry Ferrante's illegitimate granddaughter. Second, they proposed wedding 17-year-old Juan Borgia, Alexander's second child and the Duke of Gandia, to King Ferdinand's cousin. Alexander accepted the deals. But in doing so, he was just papering over the underlying problems. Rome and the papacy were on a collision course with Milan and Naples and France and Spain. At some point, Alexander would need to pick a side, and it was only a matter of time until old grudges came to a head. In the meantime, Alexander had one last child to maneuver, his eldest son, 18-year-old Cesare. Alexander knew that his power within the Vatican was tenuous at best. Cardinals were scheming creatures, and a pope needed clerical allies. The quickest solution was to simply elevate people to the rank of cardinal. So, in September 1493, Alexander opened 13 new cardinal positions. Among those now joining the sacred fraternity was Cesare Borgia. Many cardinals were outraged at what was clearly a naked power grab by Alexander. And the man leading the anti-Alexander faction was Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere. Still bitter about losing the papacy to Alexander, della Rovere didn't hide his disdain for Alexander. He attempted to amass support within the church. But Alexander faced more immediate threats than a disgruntled cardinal. In late 1493, Charles VIII 
the 23-year-old king of France suddenly decided he was going to invade Naples. It appeared that the alliances Alexander had so carefully negotiated might all be for naught. The devil on Charles's shoulder was Ferrante's current Milanese enemy, the Sforzas. They encouraged Charles to invade Naples and reassert French control, even offering the French army safe passage through Milan. Keen on the idea, Charles sent emissaries to Rome seeking Alexander's approval to name him heir to Naples. Negotiations between the two resulted in nothing except the knowledge that at some point soon, Charles was going to invade Italy whether Alexander liked it or not. Ultimately, it wasn't the church or France or Milan that dethroned Ferrante. In January 1494, Ferrante died of cancer, paranoid of usurpation and hated by his subjects. But if Pope Alexander thought the death of a longtime nuisance meant relief, he was sorely mistaken. The eyes of Italy looked to him to decide the rightful heir of Naples, Ferrante's son, Alfonso II, or Charles VIII of France. Alexander was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Milan was on France's side, and the rest of Italy was either neutral or too weak to repel the inevitable French invasion. But the wrong decision could anger Alexander's friends in Spain. Adding to the pressure was Alexander's nemesis, Cardinal de la Rovere, who was a friend of France. One of de la Rovere's supporters demanded that Alexander anoint Charles, or a council would investigate Alexander for corruption. After months of soul-searching and debate, in April, Alexander decided that he was going to place his bet on Alfonso II and officially have him crowned King of Naples. After all, Alexander refused to be a toady for France. Of course, that didn't stop Charles's invasion, and in September 1494, his army of 30,000 had crossed the Alps. Once in Italy, the operation was a walk in the park. The French met little to no resistance from any of the northern city-states. By December, Charles was knocking on Rome's door. Thankfully, Rome avoided bloodshed. Alexander agreed to barricade himself in one of the city's fortresses if Charles didn't attack Rome. On December 31, 1494, Charles and his army entered Rome. By his side was Cardinal de la Rovere, who hoped Charles would depose Alexander. For 15 days, Alexander refused to meet with Charles. But finally, on January 16th, he conceded that it was time to talk, and the two began to negotiate Rome and Naples' collective future. Alexander allowed Charles to freely march through the Papal States without interference, and Charles publicly showed deference to Alexander. Pope Alexander saved Rome from destruction and kept himself on the Papal throne. Toward the end of that January, the weak King Alfonso abdicated to his son, Ferrandino. Charles was more or less able to waltz into Naples and was even welcomed there after 50 years of tyrannical Spanish rule. Of course, tyrants beget tyrants. For the next several months, the French overstayed their welcome as they plundered and sowed discontent among the locals. And soon, the Neapolitans were clamoring for the French to go back home. Word of Charles's harsh rule spread throughout Italy and beyond. 
Because his conquest had been so easy, Charles was apparently oblivious that while he plundered, an alliance had quietly formed between the Papal States, Venice, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and even Milan, all to battle the French. They called themselves the Holy League. Upon hearing that Italy was suddenly united against him, Charles tried to bribe Pope Alexander, the face of the League. Realizing that he was suddenly no longer safe, Charles decided to return home. Charles left Naples at the end of May 1495. The march back north was just as easy as the trip south, partially due to the fact that the League was painfully slow when it came to amassing troops. Only once did they meet the French on the battlefield. The French easily won, but they kept marching homeward, and eventually they were back in France, save for a few fallen troops. When the dust settled, remarkably nothing had changed in Italy. Ferrandino was given a shot at being king, the Holy League essentially dissolved, and the Italian city-states began squabbling again. The only person to seemingly gain anything from the chaos and confusion was Pope Alexander, his ability to navigate the dire situation and remain Pope against the hopes of Cardinal de la Rovere showed the rest of Italy how powerful Alexander could be. But while Cardinal de la Rovere stumbled back to France and remained in a self-appointed exile, Alexander still had enemies. And soon, a Dominican friar in Florence, claiming to be a prophet, would challenge Alexander's authority over all of Christendom. Coming up, Alexander battles an ecclesiastical crisis while facing a personal loss. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the end of 1495, Charles VIII, the short-lived ruler of Naples, was back in France, after a year of turmoil in Italy, very little had changed. Naples was once again under Spanish influence. The Orsini-Colonna feud in the Papal States continued to rage with the Pope refusing to take sides, and the Sforza became the new, most hated family for allowing the French to walk into Italy. 64-year-old Pope Alexander VI, meanwhile, was doing great. He never fully bent the knee to the invading Frenchmen, to many, it was a sign that they had a strong leader on the papal throne. But this was Renaissance Rome. 
So naturally, no sooner had the French left the peninsula than trouble came calling again. This time in the form of a troublesome monk in Florence, who seemed determined to call the Pope's ecclesiastical authority into question. Throughout the 15th century, the Medici family had been arguably the most powerful family in all of Italy. However, all that changed when Lorenzo de' Medici died in 1492 and his son Piero became the ruler of Florence. The young Piero was weak and ineffectual, so much so that when Charles VIII invaded Italy in the fall of 1494, Piero instantly caved to the Frenchmen. This angered the Florentines so much that they kicked the Medici family to the curb. A small power vacuum emerged, and the man to come out on top was a Dominican friar named Girolamo Savonarola. Savonarola was a total Puritan. Obsessed with wickedness and God's wrath, he and his minions purged anything deemed pleasurable in town. Sex, gambling, art, even public parties. Throughout 1495, as Savonarola's power and influence expanded, he aimed his rhetoric at the Vatican. Savonarola claimed that Rome was a wicked place and that the church was a quote-unquote prostitute. And since he was God's chosen messenger, Alexander could go kick rocks. At first, Alexander ignored the troublesome monk. He wrote a few letters demanding that Savonarola stop preaching and to fall into line, and at random periods, Savonarola actually obeyed. But at the beginning of 1497, word reached Savonarola that Piero de' Medici was planning a coup. In response, Savonarola decided to consolidate his power, tightening the short reins of his puritanical rule and amping up his rhetoric against the Vatican. He even asked outside kings to depose Alexander and install a new pope. While this may seem like small potatoes, such blasphemy hadn't been witnessed in a long time. Savonarola was the first existential threat the church faced since the Western Schism in the late 1300s. Other cardinals, even those initially sympathetic to Savonarola's calls for reform, soon demanded that Alexander do something. So, in May 1497, Alexander did. He excommunicated the monk. When word reached Savonarola a month later, Savonarola scoffed. Privately, however, he knew the decree was a problem. So, much to Alexander's relief, the monk seemed to fall in line, suddenly going very quiet. The timing couldn't have been better. Because just as Savonarola learned that he was excommunicated, Alexander and the Borgia family were struck with a sudden tragedy. On June 15, 1497, Juan Borgia's body was fished out of the Tiber River. The Pope's second son and favorite child was dead, a victim of murder. When last we left Juan, he was married and living in Aragon as Duke of Gandia. But a few years later, Juan was back in Italy helping his father. In the wake of the French retreat, Alexander decided it was a perfect chance to catch the Roman barons off guard and break their strength. Specifically, Alexander wanted to finally destroy the historically powerful Orsini family by seizing their lands. Naturally, the Orsini resisted. Needing people he could trust, Alexander recalled Juan and named him Captain General of the Papal Army. 
Throughout 1496 and 1497, Juan scoured the Italian countryside, capturing Orsini's strongholds and asserting papal authority. However, with each victory, Juan grew increasingly self-important and violent and angered everyone. The Orsini, the College of Cardinals, the Sforzas, everyone except Alexander. So when Juan's death was ruled a murder in June 1497, the only person who seemed shocked and sad was Alexander. Instead, most people wanted to know who had the nerve to do what all of Italy seemingly hoped to accomplish. The list of candidates was long. However, history's favorite suspect was none other than Juan's older brother, Cardinal Cesare. The evidence against Cesare is mostly circumstantial. Allegedly, Juan had an affair with Cesare's mistress while basking in his newfound military glory. Meanwhile, Cesare was stuck as a cardinal. Whispers throughout Italy found Cesare guilty, but Alexander seemed unconvinced that one of his children was capable of fratricide. Instead, he thought the Orsini were the culprits. One Venetian even said, his holiness intends to ruin the Orsini because they certainly caused the death of his son. But as Alexander was grieving the loss of one child, another was soon embroiled in a scandal of her own, one that would spark lurid rumors. The marriage between Lucrezia Borgia and Giovanni Sforza was supposed to create a strong alliance between the two great families. But after the Sforzas allowed France to waltz into Italy, Alexander realized he wanted nothing to do with them. Plus, his daughter's marriage was not a happy one. Alexander decided that the only way to end the marriage was to annul it, on the grounds that it had never been consummated. However, this posed its own problem. It required Giovanni to admit that he was impotent. Of course, no man would admit to such a thing, certainly not in the 1490s. Instead, Giovanni claimed that the reason Alexander looked to end the marriage was so that he could have Lucrezia to himself. Giovanni's hysterical declarations were the impetus for allegations of incest that plagued the Borgias for centuries. There is no evidence that any of the Borgias ever engaged in sexual relationships with each other. Instead, it appears that it was a smear conducted by the Borgias' enemies. That didn't stop the incest rumors from spreading throughout Italy. But ultimately, they didn't help Giovanni. In November, he knew he had no leverage against the Pope and signed a document admitting that he was impotent. Just like that, Lucrezia's marriage was annulled. Within eight months, Alexander married Lucrezia off to a young Spanish duke down in Naples, affirming that he was now, more than ever, committed to the current regime. But before Alexander could relish cutting ties with the Sforza family, an old nuisance returned. Girolamo Savonarola kept quiet just long enough for Alexander to grieve the death of his son and annul the marriage of his daughter. But now, the monk was back with a vengeance. At the beginning of 1498, Savonarola claimed that anyone who opposed him supported Satan, while also utilizing his litany of anti-Alexander insults. Alexander needed to silence Savonarola, but knew he was walking a fine line. If Rome responded with force, it could make Savonarola look like a victim. 
While Alexander plotted his best course of action, however, fate, or God, interceded. In April, the abbot of a monastery, annoyed with Savonarola's claim of divinity, challenged the monk to walk through fire. Savonarola declined the dare, but volunteered a colleague to do it for him. When the time came to light the man on fire, rain appeared and put the small flames out. Many left the demonstration realizing Savonarola was nothing more than a charlatan. Not long after that, Savonarola and two of his followers were arrested, tortured, and confessed to the charges of heresy and more. At the end of May 1498, the three were hanged and their bodies lit on fire. The Pope's ecclesiastical authority remained intact, for now. While Pope Alexander was dealing with the turmoil and chaos, murder and marriage, feuding and bloodshed, one Borgia realized he needed to start making moves of his own, Cardinal Cesare. For years, Cesare had to watch his younger brother bask in military glory while he was forced to spend his days in the boring old Vatican. But with Juan now dead, Cesare saw opportunity. The 1498 political landscape only reinforced Cesare's ambitions. In April, King Charles VIII died and his cousin Louis XII became the new king of France. Almost immediately, Louis reignited French claims on Naples and made it clear that he was going to invade Italy again. Louis also announced that he held a claim over Milan. But Louis wanted Pope Alexander's approval to make it legitimate. So Louis made the Pope an offer. For Alexander's approval, Louis would make Cesare the Duke of Valentinois, find him a wife, and even more enticing, give Cesare a unit of soldiers to command during the invasion. Cesare knew an offer like this came once in a lifetime, the opportunity to throw off the Cardinal's red hat and become the military commander he so wanted to be. Alexander, for his part, realized that with Juan dead, it was now up to Cesare to develop the Borgia dynasty beyond the Vatican. So after years of siding with the Spanish, Alexander agreed to Louis' offer and sided with the French. In July 1498, Cesare Borgia resigned. These dramatic changes put Italy on edge. Milan and Naples felt betrayed, and even the rival Orsini and Colonna decided to form a truce and send their forces to protect Milan. But it wasn't enough. In September of 1499, King Louis crossed the Alps and entered Milan. Within a month, the city surrendered and the Sforza dynasty was over. The duchy was now under the rule of the French. In Rome, the painless conquest of Milan emboldened Alexander. With France on his side, Alexander stripped the lords of the Romagna region of their titles. In their place, the entire region would be ruled by one man, Cesare. The message was clear. Alexander wasn't looking to take land for the church. He was expanding territory for the Borgias. But a simple papal bull wouldn't be enough. After all, these lords had ruled for generations and weren't just going to surrender to the son of a Spaniard. If the Borgia wanted them, they would have to take them by force. Coming up, Pope Alexander bankrolls his son's campaigns through Italy. Now back to the story. 
Throughout the history of the Church, popes have abused their power to enrich themselves or their families. They were ostensibly the most powerful men in Europe, but Pope Alexander VI wanted more. By 1499, Italy was a changing place. Pope Alexander was now aligned with France, which overthrew the Sforzas and now controlled Milan. But miraculously, the new alliance actually led to peace, at least for now. France and Spain finally settled their competing claims on Naples when they agreed to split the kingdom in half after it was conquered. Alexander managed to get in on the peacemaking too, and finally found himself on decent terms with the two most powerful European nations. So he decided the time had come for a new project, claiming Italian lands not for the church, but for the Borgia dynasty, starting with the Romagna region. In November 1499, Cesare Borgia, now commander of the papal army, left Rome on his first conquest. None of the barons in Romagna were happy to be stripped of their power, wealth, or title and refused to acknowledge Alexander's decree. Cesare, with the help of French troops, marched north to the towns of Forli and Imola. It was there that they found the warlord of the region, the formidable Caterina Sforza. Caterina was the illegitimate daughter of a previous Sforza duke who inherited Forli and Imola through marriage. When her husband died, she assumed command and earned a reputation for her intelligence and fits of rage. When she learned that Alexander took away her titles, the first thing she did was plot the Pope's murder. Obviously, she wasn't going down without a fight. And although Imola surrendered to Cesare instantly, Forley wasn't a pushover. For two weeks at the beginning of 1500, Cesare's forces shelled the castle's keep. During artillery breaks, Caterina could be seen on the ramparts, sword in hand, barking orders at her men. But she was no match for Cesare's superior forces. By the middle of January, he broke through the walls of the keep and slaughtered 400 men inside. Caterina, meanwhile, was taken captive and thrown into the infamous Castel Sant'Angelo. Cesare was supposed to continue his campaign after Forli and Imola. However, King Louis discovered that the deposed Sforzas were attempting to reclaim Milan and needed his French troops back. So Cesare returned home to a hero's welcome. His father showered him with honors and titles. The timing was almost too perfect. The year 1500 was already declared a special jubilee by Alexander. Now he was able to couple it with his son's military conquests. Unfortunately, the good times rarely lasted in the scheming world of Rome. In the summer, Lucrezia and her husband Alfonso, Duke of Bichelia, arrived at the city to enjoy the jubilee festivities. Almost immediately, trouble came calling. On the evening of July 15th, Alfonso attended a dinner with Alexander at the Vatican and by all accounts had a pleasant time. However, on his walk home, a gang of men attacked Alfonso outside St. Peter's Basilica. The Duke survived and was taken to the Vatican to recover, for a time. But then, a month later, an assassin entered Alfonso's chambers and strangled him to death. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of the tragedy. The assassin was quickly found to be Micheletto Corella, 
one of Cesare's most trusted lieutenants, who also earned the reputation as Cesare's executioner. It seems almost certain that Cesare ordered the murder of his brother-in-law, and all of Rome knew it. But why? The most likely reason is that Pope Alexander and Cesare Borgia felt that the Duke was no longer useful to them. With Alfonso gone, an eventual Vatican-supported French invasion of Naples would be less complicated for the Borgias and King Louis. Practically confirming this theory was the fact that not even two weeks after the assassination, Louis seems to have sent Cesare a thank-you gift, nearly 8,000 men to continue his conquest of the Romagna region. Alexander's role in all of this? Bankrolling his son's adventures. According to historian G.J. Meyer, Alexander redirected the papal treasury to make sure Cesare had the funds to pay his men. And when cash was tight, Alexander sold seats in the College of Cardinals. Selling red hats served multiple purposes. It gave Cesare money, it shored up support among the college, and because some of the new cardinals came from Spain, it offset any Spanish animosity over Alexander's alliance with France. Normally, such corruption would draw the ire of the other cardinals. However, by now, Pope Alexander had grown so powerful that all they could do was watch and wait for the old man to die. For the next two years, Cesare and his army sporadically campaigned throughout Romagna, taking towns and cities left and right. Eventually, Pope Alexander officially named Cesare the Duke of Romagna. In doing so, he established for the first time a duchy to be ruled by a Borgia. It might not be in their homeland in Spain, but Alexander was cementing the Borgia dynasty with actual lands and titles. However, during these campaigns, Cesare's reputation for ruthlessness and duplicity got worse and worse. In 1502, several of his condottieri, Italian captains who commanded mercenaries, feared that Cesare would turn on them. Among them were members of the Orsini family and they realized that perhaps they should rid themselves of Cesare before it was too late. Throughout the fall of 1502, the cabal of Condottieri either staged revolts or turned entirely on Cesare's forces, causing Cesare to lose several major cities. Realizing he had been betrayed and was in danger, Cesare barricaded him and his most loyal men in Imola and waited. In Rome, Pope Alexander grew worried. For over two years, he and Cesare had gone to great lengths to secure land for the nascent Borgia dynasty. But now, a bunch of clowns threatened all that they built. Soon, however, the cabal revealed itself to be a confederacy of dunces, constantly bickering amongst themselves. At the same time, several began to fear that Louis and his French army would arrive to rescue Cesare. The conspirators' resolve withered. And one by one, they all shouted mea culpa. Many cut deals with Cesare with hopes of complete reconciliation. Cesare claimed that all was forgiven because now he could turn his attention back to conquering new territory. He wasn't interested in wasting time on frivolous infighting, or so he said. But of course, there's a reason why Machiavelli modeled the prince after Cesare Borgia. On January 1st, 1503, months after the quote-unquote 
reconciliation, Cesare's executioner, Micheletto, strangled two of the conspirators with a violin wire. At the same time, three of the Orsini suddenly found themselves in chains. In Rome, Pope Alexander ordered the arrests of any and all members of the Orsini family. Even an Orsini cardinal was arrested and stripped of his wealth. The war against the Orsini didn't last long. By April, Cesare had conquered and killed enough of them that even King Louis urged the Borgias to simmer down. Cesare acquiesced, much to Alexander's disappointment. He wanted them all dead. But Alexander couldn't stay too mad at his son. After all, with the rebellion quelled, Cesare could turn his attention towards another military campaign to amass Borgia territory. On August 5th, Pope Alexander attended a garden party send-off for his son Cesare. Summers in Italy were always suffocatingly hot, but that evening seemed especially so. In fact, the first things father and son asked their host for was wine to quench their thirst. Over the next week, Alexander, Cesare, the host, and the servants all fell violently ill. While the others slowly but surely recovered, the Pope's condition quickly deteriorated. Doctors attempted the tried-and-true method of bloodletting, but for some reason, expelling nine ounces of blood didn't seem to cure the ailing Pope. Finally, on August 18, 1503, 72-year-old Pope Alexander VI died. Almost immediately, rumors spread that Alexander had been poisoned. Lord knows he had plenty of enemies who wished him dead. However, the likely cause of death was malaria. The notoriously hot summers brought with them mosquitoes from the Tiber River. As was the custom, violence broke out in the streets of Rome once word got out that the Pope was dead. Normally, this was a chance for the Orsini and Colonna to go at it against one another. But this time, the two powerful families shared a common enemy, the Borgias. The old barons who had lost land thanks to the Spaniards set about reclaiming their ancestral homes. According to historian G.J. Meyer, one Orsini member declared that he would not be satisfied until he had washed his hands and face in Borgia blood. Cesare knew that he was in danger, and so was the Borgia legacy. Suddenly, everything he and Alexander had built was in jeopardy. He concluded that the only viable option for hanging on to power was to influence the outcome of the upcoming conclave. Cesare had quite a bit of support in the College of Cardinals. Unfortunately, so did his enemies, especially the long-suffering Cardinal Giuliano de la Rovere. For years, de la Rovere had been in exile. With Alexander dead, he was determined not to let a Borgia ally don the papal tiara. Fortunately, the compromise election of Pope Pius III was a blessing for Cesare. The Borgia-backed cardinals helped ensure Pius's election, and Pius, in turn, recognized his election couldn't have occurred without Cesare's support. Unfortunately for Cesare, Pope Pius III died less than a month into his pontificate, and Cardinal de la Rovere was elected his successor, becoming Pope Julius II. Within a short period, Cesare was in chains and thrown into a Roman prison. Cesare wasn't in prison for very long. 
At the end of 1503, word got back to him that Spain was battling with France in Naples and winning. Hoping that he could use his Spanish brethren in the future, Cesare agreed to hand over his strongholds in Romagna to the Vatican in exchange for his freedom. But what Cesare didn't count on was that Isabella and Ferdinand in Spain had grown tired of the Borgias with their shifting loyalties and power grabs. So when Cesare arrived in Naples in the spring of 1504, he was arrested and sent to Spain in shackles. Cesare never gave up hope of reclaiming land for the Borgia dynasty. Unfortunately, it never came to pass. Though he eventually earned his freedom, he was forced into the military employ of the small kingdom of Navarre. On March 12, 1507, while in the midst of a siege, Cesare's forces were ambushed. Cesare was overpowered, hacked to death, and left naked on the battlefield. The military side of the Borgia dynasty had come to a bloody end. Meanwhile, Pope Alexander's daughter, Lucrezia, was able to salvage the Borgia name, somewhat. After her second husband's death, Lucrezia married the Duke of Ferrara, Alfonso d'Este. From 1501 to 1519, Lucrezia became a favorite among the people of Ferrara, earning a reputation for her piety. When tensions between Ferrara and Rome turned violent, Lucrezia pawned off her jewels to help Ferrara's poor, as well as raise money for her husband's campaign. One French diplomat described Lucrezia as a pearl. There has never been such a wonderful duchess. Considering those complimentary words, it comes as a shock how history has remembered Lucrezia Borgia in the last five centuries. Many have painted her as a conniving strumpet who committed acts of murder and had incestuous relationships with her father and her brother, despite a complete lack of evidence to support this. As for Pope Alexander, he is remembered as the personification of Renaissance Vatican greed, a selfish and corrupt charlatan who abused his role as Pope to build a dynasty for his family and one who used his bedchambers for a decades-long affair with a woman known as Giulia Farnese. In recent years, some historians have called into question many of the long-lasting rumors concerning the Borgias. The family was power-hungry, and Alexander did often put its interests first. But much of the slander against the Borgia name was spread by the family's enemies once they were no longer in power. And the leading culprit, was none other than another man who would eventually wear the papal tiara. Pope Julius II. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll dive into the life of Pope Julius II, the Borgia's nemesis, who eventually earned the nickname the Warrior Pope. Among the many sources we used, we found The Borgias and Their Enemies by Christopher Hibbert and The Borgias, The Hidden History by G.J. Meyer, incredibly useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. 
This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra and edited by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.